Book Three, Chapter Two, Sections Five to Twelve of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Five. Three hours later, Mr. Britling was working by daylight, though his study lamp was still burning and his letter to old Heinrich was still no better than a collection of material for a letter. But the material was falling roughly into shape, and Mr. Britling's intentions were finding themselves. It was clear to him now that he was no longer writing as his limited personal self to those two personal selves grieving in the old, large, high-walled, steep-roofed household amidst pine woods of which Heinrich had once shown him a picture. He knew them too little for any such personal address. He was writing, he perceived, not as Mr. Britling, but as an Englishman. That was all he could be to them. And he was writing to them as Germans. He could apprehend them as nothing more. He was just England bereaved to Germany bereaved. He was no longer writing to the particular parents of one particular boy but to all that mass of suffering, regret, bitterness, and fatigue that lay behind the veil of the front. Slowly, steadily, the manhood of Germany was being wiped out. As he sat there in the stillness, he could think that at least two million men of the central powers were dead, and an equal number maimed and disabled. Compared with that are British losses, immense and universal as they were by the standard of any previous experience, were still slight. Our larger armies had still to suffer, and we had lost irrevocably not very much more than a quarter of a million. But the tragedy gathered against us. We knew enough already to know what must be the reality of the German homes to which those dead men would never more return. If England had still the longer account to pay, the French had paid already nearly to the limits of endurance. They must have lost well over a million of their mankind, and still they bled and bled. Russia, too, in the East, had paid far more than man for man in this vast swapping off of lives. In a little while no censorship would hold the voice of the peoples. There would be no more talk of honor and annexations, hegemonies and trade routes, but only Europe lamenting for her dead. The Germany to which he wrote would be a nation of widows and children, rather pinched boys and girls, crippled men, old men, deprived men, men who had lost brothers and cousins and friends and ambitions. No triumph now on land or sea could save Germany from becoming that. France, too, would be that, Russia and lastly Britain, each in their degree. Before the war there had been no Germany to which an Englishman could appeal. Germany had been a threat, a menace, a terrible trampling of armed men. It was as little possible then to think of talking to Germany as it would have been to have stopped the Kaiser in mid-career in his hooting car down the Unter den Linden and demand a quiet talk with him. But the Germany that had watched those rushes with a slightly doubting pride had her eyes now full of tears and blood. She had believed, she had obeyed, 
and no real victory had come. Still she fought on, bleeding, agonizing, wasting her substance and the substance of the whole world, to no conceivable end but exhaustion. So capable she was, so devoted, so proud and utterly foolish. And the mind of Germany, whatever it was before the war, would now be something residual, something left over, and sitting beside a reading-lamp, as he was sitting beside a reading-lamp, thinking, sorrowing, counting the cost, looking into the dark future. And to that he wrote, to that dimly apprehended figure, outside a circle of the light, like his own circle of light, which was the father of Heinrich, which was great Germany, Germany which lived before, and which will yet outlive the flapping of the eagles. Our boys, he wrote, have died, fighting one against the other. They have been fighting upon an issue so obscure that your German press is still busy discussing what it was. For us it was that Belgium was invaded, and France in danger of destruction. Nothing else could have brought the English into the field against you. But why you invaded Belgium and France, and whether that might have been averted, we do not know to this day. And still this war goes on, and still more boys die, and these men who do not fight, these men in the newspaper offices and in the ministries, plan campaigns and strokes and counterstrokes that belong to no conceivable plan at all. Except that now, for them, there is something more terrible than war, and that is the day of reckoning with their own people. What have we been fighting for? What are we fighting for? Do you know? Does anyone know? Why am I spending what is left of my substance, and you what is left of yours, to keep on this war against each other? What have we to gain from hurting one another still further? Why should we be puppets any longer, in the hands of crowned fools and witless diplomatists? Even if we were dumb and acquiescent before, does not the blood of our sons now cry out to us that this foolery should cease? We have let these people send our sons to death. It is you and I who must stop these wars, these massacres of boys. Massacres of boys, that indeed is the essence of modern war. The killing off of the young. It is the destruction of the human inheritance. It is the spending of all the life and material of the future upon present-day hate and greed. Fools and knaves, politicians, tricksters, and those who trade on the suspicions and thoughtless generous angers of men make wars. The indolence and modesty of the mass of men permit them. Are you and I to suffer such things until the whole fabric of our civilization, that has been so slowly and so laboriously built up, is altogether destroyed? When I sat down to write to you, I had meant only to write to you of your son and mine. But I feel that what can be said in particular of our loss need not be said. It can be understood without saying. What needs to be said and written about is this, that war must be put an end to, and that nobody else but you and me and all of us can do it. 
We have to do that for the love of our sons and our race and all that is human. War is no longer human. The chemist and the metallurgist have changed all that. My boy was shot through the eye. His brain was blown to pieces by some man who never knew what he had done. Think what that means. It is plain to me, surely it is plain to you and all the world, that war is now a mere putting of the torch to explosives, that flare out to universal ruin. There is nothing for one sane man to write to another about in these days, but the salvation of mankind from war. Now I want you to be patient with me and hear me out. There was a time, in the earlier part of this war, when it was hard to be patient, because there hung over us the dread of losses and disaster. Now we need dread no longer. The dreaded thing has happened. Sitting together, as we do in spirit, beside the mangled bodies of our dead, surely we can be as patient as the hills. I want to tell you quite plainly and simply that I think that Germany, which is chief and central in this war, is most to blame for this war. Writing to you as an Englishman to a German, and with war still being waged, there must be no mistake between us upon this point. I am persuaded that in the decade that ended with your overthrow of France in 1871, Germany turned her face towards evil, and that her refusal to treat France generously, and to make friends with any other great power in the world, is the essential cause of this war. Germany triumphed, and she trampled on the loser. She inflicted intolerable indignities. She set herself to prepare for further aggressions. Long before this killing began, she was making war upon land and sea, launching warships, building strategic railways, setting up a vast establishment of war material, threatening, straining all the world to keep pace with her threats. At last there was no choice before any European nation but submission to the German will or war, and it was no will to which righteous men could possibly submit. It came as an illiberal and ungracious will. It was the will of Zabern. It is not as if you had set yourselves to be an imperial people and embrace and unify the world. You did not want to unify the world. You wanted to set the foot of an intensely national Germany, a sentimental and illiberal Germany, a Germany that treasured the portraits of your ridiculous Kaiser and his litter of sons, a Germany wearing uniform, reading black letter, and despising every culture but her own, upon the neck of a divided and humiliated mankind. It was an intolerable prospect. I had rather the whole world died. Forgive me for writing you. You are as little responsible for that Germany as I am for Sir Edward Grey. But this happened over you. You did not do your utmost to prevent it, even as England has happened, and I have let it happen over me. It is so dry, so general, whispered Mr. Britling, and yet it is this that has killed our sons. He sat still for a time, and then went on reading a fresh sheet of his manuscript. When I bring these charges against Germany, 
I have little disposition to claim any righteousness for Britain. There has been small splendor in this war for either Germany or Britain or Russia. We three have chanced to be the biggest of the combatants, but the glory lies with invincible France. It is France and Belgium and Serbia who shine as the heroic lands. They have fought defensively and beyond all expectation for dear land and freedom. This war for them has been a war of simple, definite issues to which they have risen with an entire nobility. Englishmen and German alike may well envy them that simplicity. I look to you, as an honest man, schooled by the fierce lessons of this war, to meet me in my passionate desire to see France, Belgium, and Serbia emerge restored from all this blood and struggle, enlarged to the limits of their nationality, vindicated and secure. Russia I will not write about here. Let me go on at once to tell you about my own country, remarking only that between England and Russia there are endless parallelisms. We have similar complexities, kindred difficulties. We have, for instance, an imported dynasty. We have a soul-destroying state church, which cramps and poisons the education of our ruling class. We have a people out of touch with the secret of government, and the same traditional contempt for science. We have our Irelands and Polands. Even our kings bear a curious likeness. At this point there was a break in the writing, and Mr. Britling made, as it were, a fresh beginning. Politically, the British Empire is a clumsy collection of strange accidents. It is a thing as little to be proud of as the outline of a flint or the shape of a potato. For the mass of English people, India and Egypt and all that side of our system mean less than nothing. Our trade is something they do not understand, our imperial wealth something they do not share. Britain has been a group of four democracies, caught in the net of a vast yet casual imperialism. The common man here is in a state of political perplexity from the cradle to the grave. Nonetheless, there is a great people here, even as there is a great people in Russia, a people with a soul and character of its own, a people of unconquerable kindliness, and with a peculiar genius, which still struggle towards will and expression. We have been beginning that same great experiment that France and America and Switzerland and China are making, the experiment of democracy. It is the newest form of human association, and we are still but half awake to its needs and necessary conditions. For it is idle to pretend that the little city democracies of ancient times were comparable to the great essays in practical republicanism that mankind is making today. This age of the democratic republics that dawn is a new age. It has not yet lasted for a century, not for a paltry hundred years. All new things are weak things. A rat can kill a man-child with ease. The greater the destiny, the weaker the immediate self-protection may be. And to me it seems that your complete and perfect imperialism, ruled by Germans for Germans, is in its scope and outlook a more antiquated and smaller and less noble thing than these sprawling emergent giant democracies of the West, 
that struggle so confusedly against it. But that we do struggle confusedly, with pitiful leaders and infinite waste and endless delay, that it is to our indisciplines and to the dishonesties and tricks our incompleteness provokes, that the prolongation of this war is to be ascribed, I readily admit. At the outbreak of this war I had hoped to see militarism felled within a year. 6. From this point onward Mr. Britling's notes became more fragmentary. They had a consecutiveness, but they were discontinuous. His thought had leapt across gaps that his pen had had no time to fill, and he had begun to realize that his letter to the old people in Pomerania was becoming impossible. It had broken away into dissertation. "'Yet there must be dissertations,' he said. "'Unless such men as we are take these things in hand, always we shall be misgoverned, always the sons will die.' 7. I do not think you Germans realize how steadily you were conquering the world before this war began. Had you given half the energy and intelligence you have spent upon this war to the peaceful conquest of men's minds and spirits, I believe that you would have taken the leadership of the world tranquilly, no man disputing. Your science was five years, your social and economic organization was a quarter of a century in front of ours. Never has it so lain in the power of a great people to lead and direct mankind towards the world republic and universal peace. It needed but a certain generosity of the imagination. But your Yonkers, your imperial court, your foolish, vicious princes, what were such dreams to them? With an envious satisfaction they hurled all the accomplishment of Germany into the fires of war. 8. Your boy, as no doubt you know, dreamt constantly of such a world peace as this that I foreshadow. He was more generous than his country. He could envisage war and hostility only as misunderstanding. He thought that a world that could explain itself clearly would surely be at peace. He was scheming always, therefore, for the perfection and propagation of Esperanto or Edo, or some such universal link. My youngster, too, was full of a kindred and yet larger dream, the dream of human science, which knows neither king nor country nor race. These boys, these hopes, this war has killed. That fragment ended so. Mr. Britling ceased to read for a time. But has it killed them? he whispered. If you had lived, my dear, you and your England would have talked with a younger Germany, better than I can ever do. He turned the pages back, and read here and there with an accumulating discontent. 9. Dissertations, said Mr. Britling. Never had it been so plain to Mr. Britling that he was a weak, silly, ill-informed, and hasty-minded writer, and never had he felt so invincible a conviction 
that the Spirit of God was in him, and that it fell to him to take some part in the establishment of a new order of living upon the earth. It might be the most trivial part by the scale of the task, but for him it was to be now his supreme concern. And it was an almost intolerable grief to him that his services should be, for all his desire, so poor in quality, so weak in conception. Always he seemed to be on the verge of some illuminating and beautiful statement of his cause. Always he was finding his writing inadequate, a thin treachery to the impulse of his heart. Always he was finding his effort weak and ineffective. In this instance, at the outset, he seemed to see with a golden clearness the message of brotherhood or forgiveness of a common call. To whom could such a message be better addressed than to those sorrowing parents? From whom could it come with a better effect than from himself? And now he read what he had made of this message. It seemed to his jaded mind a pitifully jaded effort. It had no light, it had no depth. It was like the disquisition of a debating society. He was distressed by a fancy of an old German couple, spectacled and peering, puzzled by his letter. Perhaps they would be obscurely hurt by his perplexing generalizations. Why, they would ask, should this Englishman preach to them? He sat back in his chair wearily, with his chin sunk upon his chest. For a time he did not think and then he read again the sentence in front of his eyes. These boys, these hopes, this war has killed. The words hung for a time in his mind. No, said Mr. Britling stoutly, they live. And suddenly it was borne in upon his mind that he was not alone. There were thousands and tens of thousands of men and women like himself, desiring with all their hearts to say, as he desired to say, the reconciling word. It was not only his hand that thrust against the obstacles. Frenchmen and Russians sat in the same stillness, facing the same perplexities. There were Germans seeking a way through to him, even as he sat and wrote and for the first time, clearly, he felt a presence of which he had thought very many times in the last few weeks, a presence so close to him that it was behind his eyes and in his brain and hands. It was no trick of his vision, it was a feeling of immediate reality. And it was Hugh, Hugh that he had thought was dead. It was young Heinrich living also. It was himself. It was those others that sought. It was all these, and it was more. It was the master, the captain of mankind. It was God, there present with him, and he knew that it was God. It was as if he had been groping all this time in the darkness, thinking himself alone amidst rocks and pitfalls and pitiless things. And suddenly a hand, a firm, strong hand, had touched his own. And a voice within him bade him be of good courage. There was no magic trickery in that moment. He was still weak and weary, a discouraged rhetorician, a good intention ill-equipped. But he was no longer lonely and wretched. 
no longer in the same world with despair. God was beside him and within him and about him. It was the crucial moment of Mr. Britling's life. It was a thing as light as the passing of a cloud on an April morning. It was a thing as great as the first day of creation. For some moments he still sat back with his chin upon his chest, and his hands dropping from the arms of his chair. Then he sat up and drew a deep breath. This had come almost as a matter of course. For weeks his mind had been playing about this idea. He had talked to Letty of this finite god, who is the king of man's adventure in space and time. But hitherto God had been for him a thing of the intelligence, a theory, a report, something told about but not realized. Mr. Britling's thinking about God hitherto had been like someone who has found an empty house, very beautiful and pleasant, full of the promise of a fine personality. And then, as the discoverer makes his lonely, curious explorations, he hears downstairs, dear and friendly, the voice of the master coming in. There was no need to despair, because he himself was one of the feeble folk. God was with him indeed, and he was with God. The king was coming to his own. Amidst the darknesses and confusions, the nightmare cruelties and the hideous stupidities of the great war, God, the captain of the World Republic, fought his way to empire. So long as one did one's best and utmost in a cause so mighty, did it matter, though the thing one did was little and poor? "'I have thought too much of myself,' said Mr. Britling, "'and of what I would do by myself. I have forgotten that which was with me.'" Ten. He turned over the rest of the night's writing presently, and read it now as though it was the work of another man. These later notes were fragmentary and written in a sprawling hand. Let us make ourselves watchers and guardians of the order of the world. If only for love of our dead. Let us pledge ourselves to service. Let us set ourselves with all our minds and all our hearts to the perfecting and working out of the methods of democracy and the ending forever of the kings and emperors and priestcrafts and the bands of adventurers, the traitors and owners and forestallers, who have betrayed mankind into this morass of hate and blood, in which our sons are lost, in which we flounder still. How feeble was this squeak of exhortation! It broke into a scolding note. Who have betrayed? read Mr. Britling, and judged the phrase. "'Who have fallen with us,' he amended. "'One gets so angry and bitter, because one feels alone, I suppose, because one feels that for them one's reason is no reason. One is enraged by the sense of their silent and regardless contradiction, and one forgets the power of which one is a part.' The sheet that bore the sentence he criticized was otherwise blank, except that written across it obliquely, in a very careful hand, were the words, Hugh, and 
Hugh Philip Britling. On the next sheet he had written, Let us set up the peace of the world republic amidst these ruins. Let it be our religion, our calling. There he had stopped. The last sheet of Mr. Britling's manuscript may be more conveniently given in facsimile than described. Hugh, Hugh, my dear Hugh, lawyers, princes, dealers in contention. Honesty, blood, blood, can make an end of them. 11. He sighed. He looked at the scattered papers and thought of the letter they were to have made. His fatigue spoke first. Perhaps, after all, I'd better just send the fiddle. He rested his cheeks between his hands and remained so for a long time. His eyes stared unseeingly. His thoughts wandered and spread and faded. At length he recalled his mind to that last idea. Just send the fiddle, without a word. No, I must write to them plainly, about God as I have found him, as he has found me. He forgot the Pomeranians for a time. He murmured to himself. He turned over the conviction that had suddenly become clear and absolute in his mind. Religion is the first thing and the last thing, and until a man has found God and been found by God, he begins at no beginning, he works to no end. He may have his friendships, his partial loyalties, his scraps of honor, but all these things fall into place, and life falls into place only with God, only with God, God who fights through men against blind force and night and non-existence, who is the end, who is the meaning. He is the only king. Of course I must write about him. I must tell all my world of him. And before the coming of the true king, the inevitable king, the king who is present whenever just men foregather, this blood-stained rubbish of the ancient world, these puny kings and tawdry emperors, these wily politicians and artful lawyers, these men who claim and grab and trick and compel, these war-makers and oppressors will presently shrivel and pass, like paper thrust into a flame. Then, after a time, he said, Our sons who have shown us God. 12. He rubbed his open hands over his eyes and forehead. The night of effort had tired his brain, and he was no longer thinking actively. He had a little interval of blankness, sitting at his desk with his hands pressed over his eyes. He got up presently, and stood quite motionless at the window, looking out. His lamp was still burning, but for some time he had not been writing by the light of his lamp. Insensibly, the day had come, and abolished his need for that individual circle of yellow light. Color had returned to the world, clean pearly color, clear and definite like the glance of a child, 
were the voice of a girl, and a golden wisp of cloud hung in the sky over the tower of the church. There was a mist upon the pond, a soft grey mist not a yard high. A covey of partridges ran and halted, and ran again in the dewy grass outside his garden railings. The partridges were very numerous this year, because there had been so little shooting. Beyond in the meadow a hare sat up as still as a stone. A horse neighed. Wave after wave of warmth and light came sweeping before the sunrise across the world of matching Zizi. It was as if there was nothing but morning and sunrise in the world. From away towards the church came the sound of some early worker wetting a scythe. End of Book Three, Chapter Two. End of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. Recorded by Peter Eastman, 2014. Thank you for listening.